Book Seven, Preface, and Chapters One through Seventeen of the City of God. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Darren L. Slider, www.logoslibrary.org. The City of God by Saint Augustine of Hippo, Book Seven, Preface. It will be the duty of those who are endowed with quicker and better understandings, in whose case the former books are sufficient, and more than sufficient, to effect their intended object, to bear with me with patience and equanimity, whilst I attempt with more than ordinary diligence to tear up and eradicate depraved and ancient opinions, hostile to the truth of piety, which the long-continued error of the human race has fixed very deeply in unenlightened minds cooperating also in this according to my little measure with the grace of him who being the true god is able to accomplish it and on whose help i depend in my work and for the sake of others such should not deem superfluous what they feel to be no longer necessary for themselves a very great matter is at stake when the true and truly holy divinity is commended to men as that which they ought to seek after and to worship not, however, on account of the transitory vapour of mortal life, but on account of life eternal, which alone is blessed, although the help necessary for this frail life we are now living is also afforded us by it. CHAPTER One. If there is any one whom the sixth book, which I have last finished, has not persuaded that this divinity, or, so to speak, deity, for this word also our authors do not hesitate to use, in order to translate more accurately that which the Greeks call Theotes, if there is any one, I say, whom the sixth book has not persuaded that this divinity or deity is not to be found in that theology which they call civil, and which Marcus Varro has explained in sixteen books, that is, that the happiness of eternal life is not attainable through the worship of God such as states have established to be worshipped, and that in such a form, perhaps when he has read this book he will not have anything further to desire in order to the clearing up of this question. For it is possible that some one may think that at least the select and chief gods, whom Varro comprised in his last book, and of whom we have not spoken sufficiently, are to be worshipped on account of the blessed life which is none other than eternal. In respect to which matter I do not say what Tertullian said, perhaps more wittily than truly, if gods are selected like onions, certainly the rest are rejected as bad. I do not say this, for I see that even from among the select some are selected for some greater and more excellent office. As in warfare, when recruits have been elected, there are some again elected from among those for the performance of some greater military service. And in the church, when persons are elected to be overseers, certainly the rest are not rejected, since all good Christians are deservedly called elect. In the erection of a building corner-stones are elected, though the other stones, which are destined for other parts of the structure, are not rejected. Grapes are elected for eating, whilst the others, which we leave for drinking, are not rejected. There is no need of adducing many illustrations, since the thing is evident. Wherefore the selection of certain gods from among many affords no proper reason why either he who wrote on this subject, or the worshippers of the gods, or the gods themselves, should be spurned. We ought rather to seek to know what gods these are, and for what purpose they may appear to have been selected. CHAPTER Two. The following gods, certainly, Varro signalizes as select, devoting one book to this subject. Janus, Jupiter, Saturn, Genius, Mercury, Apollo, Mars, Vulcan, Neptune, Sol, Orcus, Father Liber, Tellus, Ceres, Juno, Luna, Diana, Minerva, Venus, Vesta. 
of which twenty gods twelve are males and eight females. Whether are these deities called select, because of their higher spheres of administration in the world, or because they have become better known to the people, and more worship has been expended on them? If it be on account of the greater works which are performed by them in the world, we ought not to have found them among that, as it were, plebeian crowd of deities, which is assigned to it the charge of minute and trifling things. For first of all, at the conception of a fetus, from which point all the works commence, which have been distributed in minute detail to many deities, Janus himself opens the way for the reception of the seed. There also is Saturn, on account of the seed itself. There is Liber, who liberates the male by the effusion of the seed. There is Libero, whom they also would have to be Venus, who confers this same benefit on the woman, namely that she also be liberated by the emission of the seed. All these are of the number of those who are called select. But there is also the goddess Mena, who presides over the Menses, though the daughter of Jupiter ignoble nevertheless. In this province of the Menses the same author, in his book on the select gods, assigns to Juno herself, who is even queen among the select gods. And here, as Juno Lucina, along with the same Mena, her stepdaughter, she presides over the same blood. There are also are two gods, exceedingly obscure, Vitumnus and Sentinus, the one of whom imparts life to the fetus, and the other sensation, and of a truth they bestow, most ignoble though they be, far more than all those noble and select gods bestow. For surely, without life and sensation, what is the whole fetus which a woman carries in her womb, but a most vile and worthless thing, no better than slime and dust? CHAPTER Three. What is the cause, therefore, which has driven so many select gods to these very small works, in which they are excelled by Vitumnus and Sentinus, although little known, and sunk in obscurity, inasmuch as they confer the munificent gifts of life and sensation? For the select Janus bestows an entrance, and, as it were, a door for the seed, the select Saturn bestows the seed itself, the select Liber bestows on men the emission of the same seed, Libera, who is Ceres or Venus, confers the same on women, the select Juno confers, not a alone, but together with Mena, the daughter of Jupiter, the Menses, for the growth of that which has been conceived, and the obscure and ignoble Vitumnus confers life, whilst the obscure and ignoble Sentinus confers sensation, which two last things are as much more excellent than the others, as they themselves are excelled by reason and intellect. For as those things which reason and understand are preferable to those which, without intellect and reason, as in the case of cattle, live and feel, so also those things which have been endowed with life and sensation are deservedly preferred to those things which neither live nor feel. Therefore Vitumnus the life-giver, and Sentinus the sense-giver, ought to have been reckoned among the select gods, rather than Janus the admitter of seed, and Saturn the giver or sower of seed, and Liber and Liber are the movers and liberators of seed, which seed is not worth a thought unless it attain to life and sensation. Yet these select gifts are not given by select gods, but by certain unknown, and, considering their dignity, neglected gods. But if it be replied that Janus has dominion over all beginnings, and therefore the opening of the way for conception is not without reason assigned to him, and that Saturn has dominion over all seeds, and therefore the sowing of the seed whereby a human being is generated cannot be excluded from his operation, that Liber and Libera have power over the emission of all seeds, and therefore preside over those seeds which pertain to the procreation of men, that Juno presides over all purgations and births, and therefore she has also charge of the purgations of women and the births of human beings. If they give this reply, let them find an answer to the question concerning Vitumnus and Sentinus, whether they are willing that these likewise should have dominion over all things which live and feel. 
If they grant this, let them observe in how sublime a position they are about to place them. For to spring from seeds is in the earth and of the earth, but to live and feel are supposed to be properties even of the sidereal gods. But if they say that only such things as come to life in flesh, and are supported by senses, are assigned to Sentinus, why does not that God, who made all things live and feel, bestow on flesh also life and sensation, in the universality of his operation conferring also on fetuses this gift? And what then is the use of Vitumnus and Sentinus? But if these, as it were, extreme and lowest things have been committed by him who presides universally over life and sense to these gods, as to servants, are these select gods then so destitute of servants, that they could not find any to whom even they might commit those things, but with all their dignity, for which they are, it seems, deemed worthy to be selected, were compelled to perform their work along with ignoble ones? Juno is select queen of the gods, and the sister and wife of Jupiter. Nevertheless, she is Iterduca, the conductor, to boys, and performs this work along with a most ignoble pair, the goddesses Abiona and Adeona. There they have also placed the goddess Mena, who gives to boys a good mind, and she is not placed among the select gods, as if anything greater could be bestowed on a man than a good mind. But Juno is placed among the select because she is Iterduca and Domiduca, she who conducts one on a journey, and who conducts him home again, as if it is of any advantage for one to make a journey, and to be conducted home again, if his mind is not good. And yet the goddess who bestows that gift has not been placed by the selectors among the select gods, though she ought indeed to have been preferred even to Minerva, to whom, in this minute distribution of work, they have allotted the memory of boys. For who will doubt that it is a far better thing to have a good mind than ever so great a memory? For no one is bad who has a good mind. But some who are very bad are possessed of an admirable memory, and are so much the worse, the less they are able to forget the bad things which they think. And yet Minerva is among the select gods, whilst the goddess Mena is hidden by a worthless crowd. What shall I say concerning Virtus? What concerning Felicitas? Concerning whom I have already spoken much in the fourth book, to whom, though they held them to be goddesses, they have not thought fit to assign a place among the select gods, among whom they have given a place to Mars and Orcus, the one the causer of death, the other the receiver of the dead. Since, therefore, we see that even the select gods themselves work together with the others, like a senate with the people, in all those minute works which have been minutely portioned out among many gods, and since we find that far greater and better things are administered by certain gods who have not been reckoned worthy to be selected than by those who are called select, it remains that we suppose that they were called select and chief not on account of their holding more exalted offices in the world, but because it happened to them to become better known to the people. And even Varro himself says that in the way obscurity has fallen to the lot of some father gods and mother goddesses, as it falls to the lot of man. If, therefore, felicity ought not perhaps to have been put among the select gods, because they did not attain to that noble position by merit, but by chance, fortune at least should have been placed among them, or rather before them. For they say that that goddess distributes to every one the gifts she receives, not according to any rational arrangement, but according as chance may determine. She ought to have held the uppermost place among the select gods, for among them chiefly it is that she shows what power she has. For we see that they have been selected, not on account of some eminent virtue or rational happiness, but by that random power of fortune which the worshippers of these gods think that she exerts. For that most eloquent man Silust also may perhaps have the gods themselves in view when he says, but in truth fortune rules in everything. It renders all things famous or obscure according to caprice, rather than according to truth. 
for they cannot discover a reason why Venus should have been made famous whilst Virtus has been made obscure, when the divinity of both of them has been solemnly recognized by them, and their merits are not to be compared. Again, if she has deserved a noble position on account of the fact that she is much sought after, for there are more who seek after Venus than after Virtus, why has Minerva been celebrated whilst Pecunia has been left in obscurity, although throughout the whole human race avarice allures a far greater number than skill? And even among those who are skilled in the arts, you will rarely find a man who does not practice his own art for the purpose of pecuniary gain, and that for the sake of which anything is made is always valued more than that which is made for the sake of something else. If, then, this selection of gods has been made by the judgment of the foolish multitude, why has not the goddess Pecunia been preferred to Minerva, since there are many artificers for the sake of money? But if this distinction has been made by the few wise, why has Virtus been preferred to Venus, when reason by far prefers the former? At all events, as I have already said, Fortune herself, who, according to those who attribute most influence to her, renders all things famous or obscure according to caprice, rather than according to the truth, since she has been able to exercise so much power even over the gods, as, according to her capricious judgment, to render those of them famous whom she would, and those obscure whom she would, Fortune herself ought to occupy the place of preeminence among the select gods, since over them also she has such preeminent power. Or must we suppose that the reason why she is not among the select is simply this, that even Fortune herself has had an adverse fortune? She was adverse, then, to herself, since whilst ennobling others she herself has remained obscure. CHAPTER Four. However, any one who eagerly seeks for celebrity and renown might congratulate those select gods and call them fortunate, were it not that he saw that they had been selected more to their injury than to their honour. For that low crowd of gods have been protected by their very meanness and obscurity from being overwhelmed with infamy. We laugh, indeed, when we see them distributed by the mere fiction of human opinions, according to the special works assigned to them, like those who farm small portions of the public revenue, or like workmen in the street of the silversmiths, where one vessel, in order that it may go out perfect, passes through the hands of many, when it might have been finished by one perfect workman. But the only reason why the combined skill of many workmen was thought necessary was that it is better that each part of an art should be learned by a special workman, which can be done speedily and easily, than that they should all be compelled to be perfect in one art throughout all its parts, which they could only attain slowly and with difficulty. Nevertheless, there is scarcely to be found one of the non-select gods who has brought infamy on himself by any crime, whilst there is scarce any one of the select gods who has not received upon himself the brand of notable infamy. These latter have descended to the humble works of the others, whilst the others have not come up to their sublime crimes. Concerning Janus, there does not readily occur to my recollection anything infamous, and perhaps he was such an one as lived more innocently than the rest, and further removed from misdeeds and crimes. He kindly received and entertained Saturn when he was fleeing. He divided his kingdom with his guests, so that each one of them had a city for himself, the one Yaniculum, the other Saturnia. But those seekers after every kind of unseemliness in the worship of the gods have disgraced him, whose life they found to be less disgraceful than that of the other gods, with an image of monstrous deformity, making it sometimes with two faces, and sometimes, as it were, double with four faces. Did they wish that, as the most of the select gods had lost shame through the perpetration of shameful crimes, his greater innocence should be marked by a greater number of faces? CHAPTER five. But let us hear their own physical interpretations by which they attempt to colour, as with the appearance of profounder doctrine, the baseness of most miserable error. 
Varro, in the first place, commends these interpretations so strongly as to say that the ancients invented the images, badges, and adornments of the gods, in order that when those who went to the mysteries should see them with their bodily eyes, they might with the eyes of their minds see the soul of the world, and its parts, that is, the true gods, and also that the meaning which was intended by those who made their images with the human form seemed to be this, namely, that the mind of mortals which is in a human body is very like to the immortal mind, just as vessels vessels might be placed to represent the gods, as, for instance, a wine-vessel might be placed in the temple of Liber to signify wine, that which is contained being signified by that which contains. Thus by an image which had the human form the rational soul was signified, because the human form is the vessel, as it were, in which that nature is wont to be contained which they attribute to God or to the gods. These are the mysteries of doctrine to which that most learned man penetrated in order that he might bring them forth to the light. But, O oh, thou most acute man, hast thou lost among those mysteries that prudence which led thee to form the sober opinion that those who first established those images for the people took away fear from the citizens, and added error, and that the ancient Romans honoured the gods more chastely without images? For it was through consideration of them that thou wast emboldened to speak these things against the later Romans. For if those most ancient Romans also had worshipped images, perhaps thou wouldst have suppressed by the silence of fear all those sentiments, true sentiments nevertheless, concerning the folly of setting up images, and wouldst have extolled more loftily and more loquaciously those mysterious doctrines consisting of these vain and pernicious fictions. Thy soul, so learned and so clever, and for this I grieve much for thee, could never through these mysteries have reached its God, that is, the God by whom, not with whom, it was made, of whom it is not a part, but a work, that God who is not the soul of all things, but who made every soul, and in whose light alone every soul is blessed, if it be not ungrateful for his grace. But the things which follow in this book will show what is the nature of these mysteries, and what value is to be set upon them. Meanwhile, this most learned man confesses as his opinion that the soul of the world and its parts are the true gods, from which we perceive that his theology, to wit that same natural theology to which he pays great regard, has been able in its completeness to extend itself even to the nature of the rational soul. For in this book, concerning the select gods, he says a very few things by anticipation concerning the natural theology, and we shall see whether he has been able in that book, by means of physical interpretations, to refer to this natural theology, that civil theology, concerning which he wrote last when treating of the select gods. Now if he has been able to do this, the whole is natural, and in that case what need was there for distinguishing so carefully the civil from the natural? But if it has been distinguished by a veritable distinction, then, since not even this natural theology with which he is so much pleased is true, for though it has reached as far as the soul, it has not reached to the true God who made the soul, how much more contemptible and false is that civil theology which is chiefly occupied about what is corporeal, as will be shown by its very interpretations, which they have with such diligence sought out and enucleated, some of which I must necessarily mention. CHAPTER six. The same Varro, then, still speaking by anticipation, says that he thinks that God is the soul of the world, which the Greeks call cosmos, and that this world itself is God, but as a wise man, though he consists of body and mind, is nevertheless called wise on account of his mind, so the world is called God on account of mind, although it consists of mind and body. 
Here he seems, in some fashion at least, to acknowledge one God, but that he may introduce more, he adds that the world is divided into two parts, heaven and earth, which are again divided each into two parts, heaven into ether and air, earth into water and land, of all which the ether is the highest, the air second, the water third, and the earth the lowest. All these four parts, he says, are full of souls, those which are in the ether and air being immortal, and those which are in the water and on the earth mortal. From the highest part of the heavens to the orbit of the moon there are souls, namely the stars and planets, and these are not only understood to be gods, but are seen to be such. And between the orbit of the moon and the commencement of the region of clouds and winds there are aerial souls, but these are seen with the mind, not with the eyes, and are called heroes, and lares and genii. This is the natural theology which is briefly set forth in these anticipatory statements, and which satisfied not Varro only, but many philosophers besides. This I must discuss more carefully, when, with the help of God, I shall have completed what I have yet to say concerning the civil theology, as far as it concerns the select gods. CHAPTER seven. Who then is Janus, with whom Varro commences? He is the world. Certainly a very brief and unambiguous reply. Why then do they say that the beginnings of things pertain to him, but the ends to another whom they call Terminus? For they say that two months have been dedicated to these two gods, with reference to beginnings and ends, January to Janus, and February to Terminus, over and above those ten months which commence with March and end with December. And they say that that is the reason why the Terminalia are celebrated in the month of February, the same month in which the sacred purification is made which they call Februum, and from which the month derives its name. Do the beginnings of things, therefore, pertain to the world which is Janus, and not also the ends, since another god has been placed over them? Do they not own that all things which they say begin in this world also come to an end in this world? What folly it is to give him only half power and work, when in his image they give him two faces! Would it not be a far more elegant way of interpreting the two-faced image, to say that Janus and Terminus are the same, and that the one face has reference to beginnings, the other to ends? For one who works ought to have respect to both, for he who in every forth-putting of activity does not look back on the beginning, does not look forward to the end. Wherefore it is necessary that prospective intention be connected with retrospective memory. For how shall one find how to finish anything if he has forgotten what it was which he had begun? But if they thought that the blessed life is begun in this world and perfected beyond the world, and for that reason attributed to Janus, that is, to the world, only the power of beginnings, they should certainly have preferred Terminus to him, and should not have shut him out from the number of the select gods. Yet even now, when the beginnings and ends of temporal things are represented by these two gods, more honour ought to have been given to Terminus. For the greater joy is that which is felt when anything is finished. But things begun are always cause of much anxiety until they are brought to an end, which end he who begins anything very greatly longs for, fixes his mind on, expects, desires. Nor does any one ever rejoice over anything he has begun, unless it be brought to an end. CHAPTER Eight. But now let the interpretation of the two-faced image be produced. For they say that it has two faces, one before and one behind, because our gaping mouths seem to resemble the world. Once the Greeks call the palate Uranos, and some Latin poets, he says, have called the heavens palatum. And from the gaping mouth, they say, there is a way out in the direction of the teeth, and a way in in the direction of the gullet. See what the world has been brought to on account of a Greek or a poetical word for our palate. 
Let this god be worshipped only on account of saliva, which has two open doorways under the heavens of the palate, one through which part of it may be spitten out, the other through which part of it may be swallowed down. Besides, what is more absurd than not to find in the world itself two doorways opposite to each other, through which it may either receive anything into itself, or cast it out from itself? and to seek of our throat and gullet, to which the world has no resemblance, to make up an image of the world in Janus, because the world is said to resemble the palate, to which Janus bears no likeness. But when they make him four-faced, and call him double Janus, they interpret this as having reference to the four quarters of the world, as though the world looked out on anything, like Janus through his four faces. Again, if Janus is the world, and the world consists of four quarters, then the image of the two-faced Janus is false or if it is true because the whole world is sometimes understood by the expression east and west will any one call the world double when north and south also are mentioned as they call janus double when he has four faces they have no way at all of interpreting in relation to the world four doorways by which to go in and to come out as they did in the case of the two-faced janus where they found at any rate in the human mouth something which answered to what they said about him unless perhaps Neptune come to their aid, and hand them a fish, which, besides the mouth and gullet, has also the openings of the gills, one on each side. Nevertheless, with all the doors, no soul escapes this vanity, but that one which hears the truth, saying, I am the door. CHAPTER Nine. But they also show whom they would have Jove, who is also called Jupiter, understood to be. He is the god, say they, who has the power of the causes by which anything comes to be in the world. And how great a thing this is, that most noble verse of Virgil testifies, Happy is he who has learned the causes of things. But why is Janus preferred to him? Let that most acute and most learned man answer us this question. Because, says he, Janus has dominion over first things, Jupiter over highest things. Therefore Jupiter is deservedly held to be the king of all things, for highest things are better than first things, for although first things proceed in time, highest things excel by dignity. Now this would have been rightly said had the first parts of things which are done been distinguished from the highest parts, as, for instance, it is the beginning of a thing done to set out, the highest part to arrive. The commencing to learn is the first part of a thing begun, the acquirement of knowledge is the highest part. And so of all things, the beginnings are first, the ends highest. This matter, however, has already been discussed in connection with Janus and Terminus. But the causes which are attributed to Jupiter are things effecting, not things effected, and it is impossible for them to be prevented in time by things which are made or done, or by the beginnings of such things, for the thing which makes is always prior to the thing which is made. Therefore, though the beginnings of things which are made or done pertain to Janus, they are nevertheless not prior to the efficient causes which they attribute to Jupiter. For as nothing takes place without being preceded by an efficient cause, so without an efficient cause nothing begins to take place. Verily, if the people call this god Jupiter, in whose power are all the causes of all natures which have been made, and of all natural things, and worship him with such insults and infamous criminations, they are guilty of more shocking sacrilege than if they should totally deny the existence of any god. 
It would therefore be better for them to call some other god by the name of Jupiter, someone worthy of base and criminal honors, substituting instead of Jupiter some vain fiction, as Saturn is said to have had a stone given to him to devour instead of his son, which they might make the subject of their blasphemies, rather than speak of that god as both thundering and committing adultery, ruling the whole world, and laying himself out for the commission of so many licentious acts, having in his power nature and the highest causes of all natural things, but not having his own causes good. Next I ask what place they find any longer for this Jupiter among the gods if Janus is the world, for Varro defined the true gods to be the soul of the world and the parts of it, and therefore whatever falls not within this definition is certainly not a true god according to them. Will they then say that Jupiter is the soul of the world, and Janus the body, that is, this visible world? If they say this, it will not be possible for them to affirm that Janus is a god. For even, according to them, the body of the world is not a god, but the soul of the world, and its parts. Wherefore Varro, seeing this, says that he thinks God is the soul of the world, and that this world itself is God, but that as a wise man, though he consists of soul and body, is nevertheless called wise from the soul, so the world is called God from the soul, though it consists of soul and body. Therefore the body of the world alone is not God, but either the soul of it alone, or the soul and the body together, yet so as that it is God not by virtue of the body, but by virtue of the soul. If, therefore, Janus is the world, and Janus is a god, will they say, in order that Jupiter may be a god, that he is some part of Janus? For they are wont rather to attribute universal existence to Jupiter, whence the saying, All things are full of Jupiter. Therefore they must think Jupiter also, in order that he may be a god, and especially king of the gods, to be the world, that he may rule over the other gods, according to them his parts. To this effect also the same Varro expounds certain verses of Valerius Soranus in that book which he wrote apart from the others concerning the worship of the gods. These are the verses. Almighty Jove, progenitor of kings and things and gods, and eke the mother of the gods, God one and all. But in the same book he expounds these verses by saying that as the male emits seed and the female receives it, so Jupiter, whom they believed to be the world, both emits all seeds from himself and receives them into himself. For which reason, he says, Soranus wrote, Jove progenitor and mother, and with no less reason said that one and all were the same. For the world is one, and in that one are all things. Chapter 10 since therefore Janus is the world, and Jupiter is the world, wherefore are Janus and Jupiter two gods, while the world is but one? Why do they have separate temples, separate altars, different rites, dissimilar images? If it be because the nature of beginnings is one, and the nature of causes another, and one is received the name of Janus, and the other of Jupiter, is it then the case that if one man has two distinct offices of authority, or two arts, two judges, or two artificers are spoken of, because the nature of the offices, or of the arts, is different? So also with respect to one God. If he have the power of beginnings and of causes, must he therefore be thought to be two gods, because beginnings and causes are two things? But if they think that this is right, let them also affirm that Jupiter is as many gods as they have given him surnames on account of many powers, for the things from which these surnames are applied to him are many and diverse. I shall mention a few of them. Chapter 11 They have called him Victor, Invictus, Opitulus, Impulsor, Stator, Centumpeda, Supinalis, Tegillus, Almus, Ruminus, and other names which were long to enumerate. 
But these surnames they have given to one God on account of diverse causes and powers, but yet have not compelled him to be, on account of so many things, as many gods. They give him these surnames because he conquered all things, because he was conquered by none, because he brought help to the needy, because he had the power of impelling, stopping, establishing, throwing on the back, because as a beam he held together and sustained the world, because he nourished all things, because, like the pap, he nourished animals. Here, we perceive, are some great things and some small things, and yet it is one who is said to perform them all. I think that the causes and the beginnings of things, on account of which they have thought that the one world is two gods, Jupiter and Janus, are nearer to each other than the holding together of the world and the giving of the pap to animals. And yet, on account of these two works so far apart from each other, both in nature and dignity, there has not been any necessity for the existence of two gods, but one Jupiter has been called, on account of the one Tegilus, on account of the other Ruminus. I am unwilling to say that the giving of the pap to sucking animals might have become Juno rather than Jupiter, especially where there was the goddess Rumina to help and to serve her in this work, for I think it may be replied that Juno herself is nothing else than Jupiter, according to those verses of Valerius Soranus, where it has been said, Almighty Jove, progenitor of kings and things and gods, and eke the mother of the gods, etc. Why, then, was he called Ruminus, when they who may perchance inquire more diligently may find that he is also that goddess Rumina? If, then, it was rightly thought unworthy of the majesty of the gods, that in one ear of corn one god should have the care of the joint, another that of the husk, how much more unworthy of that majesty is it that one thing, and that of the lowest kind, even the giving of the pap to animals that they may be nourished, should be under the care of two gods, one of whom is Jupiter himself, the very king of all things, who does this not along with his own wife, but with some ignoble rumina, unless perhaps he himself is rumina, being ruminus for males and rumina for females? I should certainly have said that they had been unwilling to apply to Jupiter a feminine name, had he not been styled in these verses progenitor and mother, and had I not read among other surnames of his that of Pecunia, money, which we found as a goddess among those petty deities, as I have already mentioned in the fourth book. But since both males and females have money, Pecunia, why has he not been called both Pecunius and Pecunia? That is their concern. CHAPTER Twelve. How elegantly they have accounted for this name! He is also called Pecunia, they say, because all things belong to him. Oh, how grand an explanation of the name of a deity! Yes, he to whom all things belong is most meanly and most contumeliously called Pecunia. In comparison of all things which are contained by heaven and earth, what are all things together which are possessed by men under the name of money? And this name, forsooth, hath avarice given to Jupiter, that whoever was a lover of money might seem to himself to love not an ordinary god, but the very king of all things himself. But it would be a far different thing if he had been called riches, for riches are one thing, money another. For we call rich the wise, the just, the good, who have either no money or very little. For they are more truly rich in possessing virtue, since by it, even as respects things necessary for the body, they are content with what they have. But we call the greedy poor, who are always craving and always wanting. For they may possess ever so great an amount of money, but whatever be the abundance of that, they are not able but to want. And we properly call God himself rich, not, however, in money, but in omnipotence. Therefore they who have abundance of money are called rich, but inwardly needy, if they are greedy. So also those who have no money are called poor, but inwardly rich, if they are wise. 
What then ought the wise man to think of this theology, in which the king of the gods receives the name of that thing which no wise man has desired? For had there been anything wholesomely taught by this philosophy concerning eternal life, how much more appropriately would that God who is the ruler of the world have been called by them, not money, but wisdom, the love of which purges from the filth of avarice, that is, of the love of money? Chapter 13 but why speak more of this Jupiter, with whom perchance all the rest are to be identified, so that he, being all, the opinionist of the existence of many gods, may remain as a mere opinion, empty of all truth? And they are all to be referred to him, if his various parts and powers are thought of as so many gods, or if the principle of mind which they think to be diffused through all things has received the names of many gods from the various parts which the mass of this visible world combines in itself, and from the manifold administration of nature. For what is Saturn also? One of the principal gods, he says, who has dominion over all sowings. Does not the exposition of the verses of Valerius Soranus teach that Jupiter is the world, and that he emits all seeds from himself, and receives them into himself? It is he, then, with whom is the dominion of all sowings. What is genius? He is the god who is set over, and has the power of begetting all things. Who else than the world do they believe to have this power, to which it has been said, Almighty Jove, progenitor and mother? And when, in another place, he says that genius is the rational soul of every one, and therefore exists separately in each individual, but that the corresponding soul of the world is God, he just comes back to this same thing, namely that the soul of the world itself is to be held to be, as it were, the universal genius. This, therefore, is what he calls Jupiter. For if every genius is a god, and the soul of every man a genius, it follows that the soul of every man is a god. But if very absurdity compels even these theologists themselves to shrink from this, it remains that they call that genius god by special and preeminent distinction, whom they call the soul of the world, and therefore Jupiter. Chapter 14 but they have not found how to refer Mercury and Mars to any parts of the world, and to the works of God which are in the elements. And therefore they have set them at least over human works, making them assistance in speaking and in carrying on wars. Now Mercury, if he has also the power of the speech of the gods, rules also over the king of the gods himself, if Jupiter, as he receives from him the faculty of speech, also speaks, according as it is his pleasure to permit him, which surely is absurd. But if it is only the power over human speech which is held to be attributed to him, then we say it is incredible that Jupiter should have condescended to give the pap not only to children, but also to beasts, from which he has been surnamed Ruminus, and yet should have been unwilling that the care of our speech, by which we excel the beasts, should pertain to him. And thus speech itself belongs both to Jupiter and his Mercury. But if speech itself is said to be Mercury, as those things which are said concerning him by way of interpretation show it to be, for he is said to have been called Mercury, that is, he who runs between, because speech runs between men, they say also that the Greeks call him Hermes, because speech, or interpretation, which certainly belongs to speech, is called by them Herminea. Also he is said to preside over payments, because speech passes between sellers and buyers. The wings, too, which he has on his head and on his feet, they say mean that speech passes winged through the air. He is also said to have been called the messenger, because by means of speech all our thoughts are expressed. If, therefore, speech itself is Mercury, then even by their own confession he is not a god. But when they make to themselves gods of such as are not even demons, by praying to unclean spirits they are possessed by such as are not gods but demons. 
In like manner, because they have not been able to find for Mars any element or part of the world in which he might perform some works of nature of whatever kind, they have said that he is the god of war, which is a work of men, and that not one which is considered desirable by them. If, therefore, Felicitas should give perpetual peace, Mars would have nothing to do. But if war itself is Mars, as speech is Mercury, I wish it were as true that there were no war to be falsely called a god, as it is true that it is not a god. Chapter 15 But possibly these stars which have been called by their names are these gods. For they call a certain star Mercury, and likewise a certain other star Mars. But among those stars which are called by the names of gods, is that one which they call Jupiter, and yet with them Jupiter is the world. There also is that one they call Saturn, and yet they give to him no small property besides, namely all seeds. There also is that brightest of them all, which is called by them Venus, and yet they will have this same Venus to be also the moon, not to mention how Venus and Juno are said by them to contend about that most brilliant star, as though about another golden apple. For some say that Lucifer belongs to Venus, and some to Juno, but as usual Venus conquers. For by far the greatest number assigned that star to Venus, so much so that there is scarcely found one of them who thinks otherwise. But since they call Jupiter the king of all, who will not laugh to see his star so far surpassed in brilliancy by the star of Venus? For it ought to have been as much more brilliant than the rest, as he himself is more powerful. They answer that it only appears so, because it is higher up, and very much farther away from the earth. If, therefore, its greatest dignity has deserved a higher place, why is Saturn higher in the heavens than Jupiter? Was the vanity of the fable which made Jupiter king not able to reach the stars? And has Saturn been permitted to obtain at least in the heavens what he could not obtain in his own kingdom, nor in the capital? But why has Janus received no star? If it is because he is the world, and they are all in him, the world is also Jupiter's, and yet he has one. Did Janus compromise his case as best he could, and instead of the one star which he does not have among the heavenly bodies, except so many faces on earth? Again, if they think that on account of the stars alone Mercury and Mars are parts of the world, in order that they may be able to have them for gods, since speech and war are not parts of the world, but acts of men, how is it that they have made no altars, established no rites, built no temples for Ares, and Taurus, and Cancer, and Scorpio, and the rest which they number as the celestial signs, and which consist not of single stars, but each of them of many stars, which also, they say, are situated above those already mentioned in the highest part of the heavens, where a more constant motion causes the stars to follow an undeviating course. And why have they not reckoned them as gods, I do not say among those select gods, but not even among those, as it were, plebeian gods? Chapter 16 Although they would have Apollo to be a diviner and physician, they have nevertheless given him a place as some part of the world. They have said that he is also the sun, and likewise they have said that Diana, his sister, is the moon and the guardian of Rhodes. Whence also they will have her be a virgin, because a road brings forth nothing. They also make both of them have arrows, because those two planets send their rays from the heavens to the earth. They make Vulcan to be the fire of the world, Neptune the waters of the world, Father Dis, that is Orcus, the earthly and lowest part of the world. Liber and Ceres they set over seeds, the former over the seeds of males, the latter over the seeds of females, or the one over the fluid part of seed, but the other over the dry part. And all this together is referred to the world, that is, to Jupiter, who is called progenitor and mother, because he emitted all seeds from himself, and received them into himself. 
for they also make this same Ceres to be the great mother, who they say is none other than the earth, and call her also Juno. And therefore they assign to her the second causes of things, notwithstanding that it has been said to Jupiter, progenitor and mother of the gods, because, according to them, the whole world itself is Jupiter's. Minerva also, because they set her over human arts, and did not find even a star in which to place her, has been said by them to be either the highest ether or even the moon. Also Vesta herself they have thought to be the highest of the goddesses, because she is the earth, although they have thought that the milder fire of the world, which is used for the ordinary purposes of human life, not the more violent fire, such as belongs to Vulcan, is to be assigned to her. And thus they will have all those select gods to be the world and its parts, some of them the whole world, others of them its parts, the whole of it Jupiter, its parts Genius, Matarmania, Sol, and Luna, or rather Apollo and Diana, and so on. And sometimes they make one god many things, sometimes one thing many gods. Many things are one god in the case of Jupiter, for both the whole world is Jupiter, and the sky alone is Jupiter, and the star alone is said and held to be Jupiter. Juno also is mistress of second causes. Juno is the air, Juno is the earth, and had she won it over Venus, Juno would have been the star. Likewise Minerva is the highest ether, and Minerva is likewise the moon, which they suppose to be in the lowest limit of the ether. And also they make one thing many gods in this way. The world is both Janus and Jupiter. Also the earth is Juno, and Mater Mania, and Ceres. Chapter 17 and the same is true with respect to all the rest, as is true with respect to those things which I have mentioned for the sake of example. They do not explain them, but rather involve them. They rush hither and thither, to this side or to that, according as they are driven by the impulse of erratic opinion, so that even Varro himself has chosen rather to doubt concerning all things than to affirm anything. For having written the first of the three last books concerning the certain gods, and having commenced in the second of these to speak of the uncertain gods, he says, I ought not to be censured for having stated in this book the doubtful opinions concerning the gods. For he who, when he has read them, shall think that they both ought to be and can be conclusively judged of, will do so himself. For my own part I can be more easily led to doubt the things which I have written in the first book than to attempt to reduce all the things I shall write in this one to any orderly system. Thus he makes uncertain not only that book concerning the uncertain gods, but also that other concerning the certain gods. Moreover, in that third book concerning the select gods, after having exhibited by anticipation as much of the natural theology as he deemed necessary, and when about to commence to speak of the vanities and lying insanities of the civil theology, where he was not only without the guidance of the truth of things, but was also pressed by the authority of tradition, he says, I will write in this book concerning the public gods of the Roman people, to whom they have dedicated themselves and whom they have conspicuously distinguished by many adornments. But, as Xenophon of Colophon writes, I will state what I think, not what I am prepared to maintain. It is for man to think those things, for God to know them. It is not, then, an account of things comprehended and most certainly believed which he promised, when about to write those things which were instituted by men. He only timidly promises an account of things which are but the subject of doubtful opinion. Nor indeed was it possible for him to affirm with the same certainty that Janus was the world and such like things, or to discover with the same certainty such things as how Jupiter was the son of Saturn, while Saturn was made subject to him as king. 
He could, I say, neither affirm nor discover such things with the same certainty with which he knew such things as that the world existed, that the heavens and earth existed, the heavens bright with stars, and the earth fertile through seeds, or with the same perfect conviction with which he believed that this universal mass of nature is governed and administered by a certain invisible and mighty force. End of Book 7, Preface in Chapters 1-17 through 17. Recording by Darren L. Slider, Fort Worth, Texas, www.logoslibrary.org.